open glory, that you will establish your eternal kingdom of righteousness and peace. And that's what we celebrate and look forward to this Advent season as well. And we pray for your sake. Amen. Well, again, just to remind you, for our Advent season, we're looking at the Christmas story in our our time together in the Word. And we're going to be, we have been meditating on uh, sort of the four probably classic New Testament passages about Christmas season. And so we started off in Luke 1 a couple weeks ago, looking at the announcement that Gabriel the angel made to Mary uh, that she would bear Jesus. And then last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 1, uh, where Gabriel appears to Joseph and uh, tells him as well what's going to be happening. Well, today, we finally get to what is to be happening. We get to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to be studying this morning um, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and uh, just wondering at how glorious this incarnation is. And then we'll conclude our series next Sunday by looking at Matthew chapter 2, and the worship that the world brings to him, and we'll be looking at the account of the Magi. So please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, if you're not already there. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 20 and marveling together at the fact that God has become man. And uh, we're not going to read the passage up front, though, so don't glance too far ahead. I'd like us to just experience the story um, as it unfolds in the text before us, And as we read it and study it together, you know, the church has been telling and retelling this story uh, many times over, even before Luke recorded it. And of course, thousands upon thousands of times ever since he did. And so like our brothers and sisters of long ago, we find this familiar story always satisfying to our souls. So, we wonder in worship. This morning, Luke would have us wonder in worship at the greatness of the incarnation. And we talk about that word, it's a theological term, where God became man, he's enfleshed, if you will. But the incarnation is quite a great feat. And what this incarnation would mean for the whole world, that's what Luke is putting before us. And he wants to reconfirm to us. Um, And so our faith can grow about the glory of this incarnation of the Son of God. And so in verses 1 to 7, we're told the story about how God has sovereignly directed uh, in history His humble birth, the humble birth of the one who would be the true King of Peace. And then in verses 8 to 20, He puts before us really the centerpiece of the story And that is that heaven and earth together rejoiced at the birth of the Messiah. And in fact, heaven and earth are still rejoicing in the birth of Christ the Lord. This is good news of great joy for all the people, as we read in verse 10. So let's first take a look at how God sovereignly directed the humble birth of Jesus, the true King of Peace. The historical setting here is extremely important as Luke sets this up for us. And we read at the beginning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So the text begins. Now, it came to pass about in those days, and it it connects us with everything that went on before 
in the Gospel of Luke. And if you look back, you can see, you know, it's all about the announcement and the birth of John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner. It's all about the preparations being made for the, society, for the Messiah to come. It's in those days that this took place. And really, the saying, it's in those days, is a signal that the key event of all of history is about to take place. It's about to happen. And this, here's where a little bit of Roman history comes in handy, because it's what Luke's playing off of here. So the emperor at the time was Octavian Caesar Augustus. He ruled from 27 BC to AD 14, quite a long time. And he decrees that a census be taken for the purpose of taxation, of course. Money's good. And so he wants to tax all the inhabitants of the whole world, it says. Well, you know, the whole world, of course, the Romans didn't control the whole world. They just thought they did. But this is the typical grand hyperbole that all great men of the world think that they have. That's who he is. So Octavian was the heir as the great nephew of Julius Caesar, but he ended up initially ruling in a triumvirate. That means there were three guys. So it was him, another guy named Lepidus, and then one that's a little more familiar to us, Mark Antony. And Lepidus, brief history, Lepidus fell from power. That's all you need to know. Then Antony, you know, he, he, he compromises with Cleopatra. Fun story. And gets defeated by Octavian. And so then the Senate, this is the key piece, acknowledges him and gives him the title Augustus. You know what that means? That means exalted one. He's the exalted one. That title was given to him in 27 BC. And it's the beginnings of what would later become the emperor cult and the worship of the emperor that would be required Another point to notice here is that Augustus Caesar is the one who actually put an end to the strife of constant civil war in the empire, and he established what became to be known as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. In other words, who is this exalted Caesar, this Octavian Augustus? He is the King of Peace. He's the King of Peace. That's how he was known Politicians like to be known for these things. But the true king of peace and the true exalted one was about to be born in his empire as a slap in his face. The one who would rightly be worshipped by the whole world, not the made-up whole world that the emperor thought he controlled, but by the whole world of all the peoples of the world. Caesar didn't know it, but he was the unwitting agent of God. He wasn't that great, and he wasn't that powerful. And we, the readers of Luke's gospel, understand that ultimately it's God who decrees, and his decrees are being carried out, and history belongs to God. And so this event would be the event of eternal significance for truly the whole world. This is a very purposeful setup by Luke for us to understand what is happening in this passage as we continue to read. And so then we read about these details in the backdrop of what has just been said. And so Joseph and Mary now travel in verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, 
to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So, you know, most probably they didn't have to return to their hometowns, but it was a Jewish custom, and so many people did this at the time. And perhaps in Joseph's case, he saw this as a wonderful new opportunity at this time. And some would suggest, too, also that Joseph perhaps had property back there, and he returned for this reason as well. And Mary goes with him. They leave Nazareth and Galilee in the northern part, and they travel about 75 miles south to Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem, a little bit. And her going along with him, it doesn't seem that it's really required, but of course, it'd probably be the best choice for them both at this point. I mean, she's going to be giving birth, uh, and there's a lot of social stigma in her particular situation but really, she had to go because divine destiny was going to be fulfilled. And she was engaged, or rather betrothed. It was a one-year period. They were considered legally married. They just simply haven't consummated yet the marriage. And Mary at this point could be anywhere, as you read the storyline, anywhere from three months pregnant to full term. We don't know for sure. So don't be too enamored by the legend. You know, there are a lot of Christmas legends out there. Don't be too enamored by the legend that Mary was experiencing birth pangs on the trip itself. You know, makes for a good story, but may or may not be true. So, but going to Bethlehem was important because Joseph, and this is the key point here, was of the family of David. That's the central concern, is that this child that was going to be born would inherit the throne of David as David's greater son that was promised, and as Gabriel has already announced. And so they're headed to the city of David, and yes, this is normally a reference to the city of Jerusalem, it's called the city of David, but David grew up in Bethlehem, and it says in 1 Samuel 16, and so it's also known as the city of David. You know, and David lived in a lot of places, and they're all sort of called cities of David, and you can read about those in Scripture even. But this prophecy is not mentioned that we already read this morning, but we all know it, that that's what's going on here in Micah chapter 5, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who will be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. And then Mary gives birth to the child in verses 6 and 7. It, con it continues, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Literally, it says in the original language, the days are fulfilled. And if you read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, this is a very important word choice. Because it's not just simply that, oh, it's time to have a baby. But in Luke's theology, it's, the point is the history of redemption has come to this point of fulfillment. That's what's going on. It's beyond just the biological fact that the birth is coming and the time is fulfilled for Mary, but it's the fulfillment of the ages when the eternal Son of God would become man. And contrary to some other legends, the birth was likely normal. It wasn't that Mary was spared pain. 
And of course, it was filled with all of that and all the excitement that we know goes along with childbirth. And so according to the custom, the baby's wrapped up really tightly in strips of cloth to protect it, to keep it warm, comfort the child. And the baby was placed in a feeding trough, the obvious and perfect place, by the way, to place a baby in a cave-like stable. It's not unusual to have farm animals in the adjacent room or on the first floor of a residence in this time. In fact, if you've had opportunities to travel around the world yet today, I mean, it's not that uncommon to have farm animals in your residence. And they were probably not as repulsed by the arrangement as we are who come from a much more sanitized age. But this was Mary's firstborn, you notice, emphasizing that he had the right to inherit the throne. And the reason that they are where they are is because it says there was no room at the inn. It's more than just the idea of there wasn't a hotel room available that day. But it's also that there couldn't be, there wasn't any normal lodging place that could be found, not even the ability to stay with some poor relative on that particular night. Now, at this point, all the details that we might have are just pure conjecture and really are not that helpful and, and necessary in telling the story. And so we shouldn't overplay for sentimentality's sake, the scantiness of the information that we have before us. But it's not likely that they're poverty-stricken individuals as sometimes they're portrayed. They probably weren't because Joseph was a craftsman and, and later on as we read in the gospel accounts that they'll be found living in a house. And there's also no mention, you'll notice in our text, you can keep searching in vain, but you're not going to find a villainous innkeeper, you know, who doesn't want them to stay in there, like he's, and he's portrayed with contempt in Christian cartoons. Yeah, he's not in the story, sorry. Nor is this necessarily the last place in town or the only place that they've stayed. Most likely they've been in town a while, and so they're also not arriving late in a snowstorm, which is also another legend. And it was snowing both ways, of course. But what we do know is that they were godly parents. The text has already told us that. They were godly parents, they were good parents, and they responsibly selected the best option they had available that night, even though it wasn't their first choice. Now, I don't want to quash our holy imaginations during this season, but only to bring to our minds the forefront the main points of the Scripture and by doing so, hopefully it purifies our holy imaginations. We need to focus where Scripture focuses, at least, at least eventually, and not simply add our speculations and enjoy the sentimentalities that we have. You know, Luke didn't write the Gospel of Luke so that we could develop Christmas legends. He didn't tell the story in Luke 2 as a Christmas story. So these verses are a simple presentation showing us that God is sovereign over history. Yes, He's sovereign even over the exalted Caesar who's the King of Peace in this world. And the magnitude of the condescension of His glorious Son. I mean, He's born in absolute obscurity, which doesn't make sense. He's born in humble circumstances, which doesn't make sense even for an earthly king, but let alone the king 
of the universe. You see, God sovereignly directed the humble birth of the true king of peace. And this section ends as it does on purpose, there's no room at the end, in order to emphasize to us the infinite condescension of this divine, royal Messiah. The world had no room for him. And here we see the Son of the Most High, the horn of salvation, the sunrise from on high, lying in a feedy trough, in a stable, with no fanfare from the world to welcome him. And yet, here we are, as Christians, worshiping him. The Lord and Savior of the world. I mean, we definitely should see the humiliation in the circumstances. And we do take pleasure in rehearsing these familiar historic details. And we understand that only a divine love is strong enough motivation for the Son of God to come like this. And we sense as we read the Scriptures that there's a hope for true restoration being presented to us here this morning. It's looming in the background, you see, already with the introduction that Luke gave us. Because soon... God is going to overshadow Caesar's worldly hope. All politicians, all of them present to us a worldly hope to believe in. And if you think about it, that's all they have to offer. But here comes the true king of peace, who will bring peace and righteousness. And Jesus' humility from the very beginning would characterize his whole life, his whole ministry, his death on the cross for our sins. It would confound his enemies. Could never figure out the wisdom of God in this plan. Because the world just simply looks for people who are wise in their own eyes. And that's the agenda that's put upon us. But you see, this is exactly what makes Jesus so desirable to those who are humble before God. And if you want salvation, here he is. And so we wonder and worship at the greatness of this incarnation and what it would mean for the whole world. So second, we look at what Luke shows us is that heaven and earth rejoiced and are still rejoicing over Christ the Lord that day. There's an announcement given to the shepherds in verses 8 to 14. This is actually the centerpiece of the story. And then verses 15 and following, we hear about their responses and we read about them. And so this announcement is now given to the shepherds in verses 8 to 14, where it says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the central section of Luke 2, 1 to 20. It's the focus of the passage. The angelic gloria, as it's known in verses 10 to 14, is what the story is all about and the interpretation of it for us. 
we learn that some shepherds are watching their sheep at night against predators, of course, and thieves. And we might say, well, who really cares? I mean, what are shepherds anyway? But again, we already know that that's exactly the point of the story. We wouldn't expect shepherds to be the very first witnesses, it would seem, of the divine Messiah's birth. I mean, it's precisely the fact that they lack social status, that they're near the bottom on the pecking order of society, that mirrors, it mirrors the humble birth of the Messiah. And it also teaches us that salvation is truly for all the world, even the least likely, even for people who feel the least worthy. These unknown shepherds would receive the highest honor, too, of becoming the first evangelists of Jesus Christ. It's true, just like Mary sang earlier, we didn't study it, but God exalts the humble, and that was her response in the Magnificat. If you go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 51, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. This holy child would rise to become the true shepherd of Israel, and he would exceed David and all that he performed. He would raise up all who believe in him. And suddenly then, the angel of the Lord that appears with the glory of the Lord, perhaps, you know, it's Gabriel again, we don't know, maybe it's him making his third announcement in Luke, but the shepherds are struck with terror, just like Zacharias and Mary were earlier in the story, but they too are reassured by the angel, and the announcement is very simple, there would be great news, there would be good news of great joy for all the people. Of course, the Jewish people are the first intention, but it's surely expansive, you just simply read the rest of Luke and you read the book of Acts, the Gentiles, the peoples of the world all the peoples. That's who he would be for. And the gospel of great joy is that the one that Gabriel announced back in chapter 1 to Mary in verses 31 to 32, that one, he's the one who has come. He's been born. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, three titles are given to Jesus here in verse 11. He's called Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is the Savior who rescues us from our sins and he alone is able to bear the punishment for our sins. By faith in His cross and resurrection, we would receive freedom from sin and eternal life. Is He your Savior? Do you want Him as your Savior? But He's more than that. He is the Christ, which means the Anointed One, meaning He's the Messiah, the Messiah of David, who has brought the kingdom of God. He's inaugurated it, in other words, but he's soon going to return in glory and complete it in all of its promises and blessings, and all of us who are part of his people will join him. He's the Savior from sin. He's the Christ of the kingdom, but he's the Lord of heaven. He's the eternal God himself. 
the Son of God. This is the first explicit statement in the writings of Luke, and there are certainly many more to come, that Jesus is God. So these three names summarize the hope, really, of the whole infancy narrative that we read in the Gospel of Luke. They promise to us that if we would read the rest, there's a full gospel to come. So read the book of Luke. Now, surely now the shepherds are thinking, well, there's going to be some amazing sign about this going to happen. Some grand sign around the birth of a Savior who would be Christ the Lord. But the sign that's given is one of intense incongruity between who he really is and where he is. The Son of God as a baby is going to be wrapped up and lying in a feeding trough. How odd, how mysteriously paradoxical this must have seemed to the shepherds for the divine Messiah to enter the world in in such a humble way. Rather, it's not just really humble, it's actually humiliating. You think about the the infinite condescension of Jesus who lived in eternity and glory as our eternal Son of God to be born like this. Actually, it's the perfect sign, of course, divine, devised by divine wisdom. It exceeds human understanding, and it reveals and impresses upon our mind again just the extent of that incarnation. No, that's how he would live among us. He himself spoke often about this, that he came as one who came to serve. He came to serve God as Father, and he came to serve humanity. And this is how he would die for us, too. He would die in obedience to the Father and their eternal plan of redemption together, and he would purchase our freedom. This is how our salvation would come to us, purely out of God's grace. Nothing could ever earn it or, or cause him to extend his grace toward us. And the mercy of God. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. It's talking about the incarnation, right? so that you by his poverty might become rich. Yet still it bothers us, you know, it should bother us as we love and adore him. It just doesn't seem like a glorious enough idea. It's not fitting. In fact, I would suggest that you let it bother you for a while because it will help in your Christmas meditations upon the glory of Jesus Christ if you let this bother you. Because then it's going to lead you to greater adoration of who he is. So this angel's just talking by himself. And then suddenly we see a whole host of angels show up. A whole army of them. And they're all praising God. And the heavens are opened up. And there's this burst of delight that is shown in God's plan of redemption moving forward. I mean, think about it from the angel's perspective for a second. I mean, this is the greatest thing that they've seen God do since the creation of the world and creating man, God, mankind in his very own image. And now God is glorifying himself yet again in the salvation of mankind. They finally get to discover after all these millennia of years how perfect and precise and glorious it would be to save humanity after the fall. So these angels then sing, if you will, like the third hymn in Luke so far, this couplet that describes the happenings in heaven and the happenings on earth at this moment. 
So in the highest, what's happening is glory is being given to God because of the incarnation of the Son of God. That's what the angelic beings are doing. On earth, what's happening is peace and or salvation is coming to those who are chosen by God. That's what's going on. That's what they're singing about. At this point in history, that it's all been pointing to, everything's been waiting for, up in the heavens, glory is being given to God by the angelic hosts and the redeemed that are there at this point. And of course, on earth, what's happening at this moment is that peace and salvation are going out to the ends of the earth to those who are chosen by God. Now, some other translations, it's very difficult to translate this section from the Greek, but the phrase, men of his good pleasure, is also a standard way of translation, translating it. it refer, it's a standard way of referring to God's chosen ones. Uh, there are, those upon whom his favor rests is another way of translating it. Depending on your version, you'll have some of these. But what you need to know is that it's not about peace being granted to people who please God in and of themselves. That's not what it means. Or people who are those type of people. It's not just that, oh, peace comes to sort of the good ones. Because we can't do anything to earn peace, and we can't do anything to earn salvation. And what it's talking about is about how God takes pleasure in granting it. He takes pleasure in granting salvation to many, favoring those whom He will in His love, and bringing to them the heavenly peace. Have you been favored by God's grace and been granted His peace and salvation? So then, that's the centerpiece of the story. That's what's really going on here. And then we see the response of four different groups of people, or four, there are four responses that we read about in verses 15 to 20. We see oh, this joyful witness of the shepherds. But Luke is recording uh, four different responses from the angel's message about the birth of Jesus. First, we see what the shepherds decide to do. Then we see the response of the Bethlehemites, that is the people who live in the city of Bethlehem and around the region. Then we see the response of Mary. And then finally, we, we see the response of the shepherds. And Luke records all this information in this way to try to inspire us to adore Jesus in the same way. God became man. And his point is, we should do what all these people do. So notice in this passage all the action verbs that are there in front of you. What you see people doing because Jesus came. And so when the angelic host goes back to heaven, the shepherds are discussing excitedly amongst themselves what should they do. Well, they decide that they're just going to go right now and they're going to go find this sign that they've been told about. And so in faith and obedience, they eagerly seek out and find the work of God that they were told about. And they do. And they find the baby and the baby's mother, Mary, and his father, Joseph. And finally, they find, you know, of course, the holy infant Jesus, the Christ child lying in a manger. And they're so full of joy that they tell everybody that they run into about what has happened. And they especially tell them about the words of the angel that was just spoken to them when he said, I bring you good news of great joy. They're repeating this to people that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. And they tell people about this that they've been told. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And that's what we all read about when the angels went away from them. 
the shepherds said to one another, well, let's go see. Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I mean, it's an amazing story. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. So these people of Bethlehem, it says, they're all, they're all in wonder at this report that the shepherds keep giving about this message that they got from angels, and then how they went, and they found it exactly as the angel said, and here he is, the promised one. And all who hear are amazed, and they respond enthusiastically. But it's important to realize, too, that not necessarily with all, all in belief, they're just amazed. There's a mixture in there. In fact, it prefigures the popularity of Jesus in the gospel according to Luke, if you read on. Because, yeah, a lot of people get excited about Jesus, but it doesn't mean they put their faith in him. Because as Jesus opened his public ministry, if you, if you look forward in the gospel of Luke, in his hometown of Nazareth, of all the places he begins, it says in Luke 4.22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. It's like a purposeful, hey, remember what I told you back in chapter 2? And they said, ah, isn't this just Joseph's son? Merely a man, they mean. And then we look at Mary her response is she just treasures all this in her heart. She ponders over the stories, what's really going on. She has her own history, right? She's thinking through. And she remembers her message from Gabriel, the visitation of the Spirit, Elizabeth, Elizabeth's blessing, and now she adds all of these events on top of it. That's a lot to take in. The great and mysterious meaning of it all she's thinking about. And she reflects upon it all, quiet joy, with a much fuller understanding than many and is meditating on the coming glories of God. Well, then we get back to the shepherds again. What are they doing? They're leaving and they're returning back to their fields, believing they're the first witnesses of the Christ child and the first ones to get to witness about him to other people. And so they go, it says, praising and glorifying God for all that they heard and seen. And that's really the consummate proper response to this angelic message and all these divine events that have just unfolded. It's just to praise God. See, heaven and earth rejoiced that day, angels and people, and all are still rejoicing, angels and people, over Christ the Lord. And we too are supposed to rejoice and worship. We too are supposed to go and see and believe and make known and wonder and treasure and ponder and glorify and praise God for it all. Those are the action words in the text. And he's shown it to us. So go re-examine those on your own. Because we see in him here again this, this, this humiliation and the fragility of, of this infant, our Lord Jesus from heaven, and how the world rejoices over it all. And we especially see here this morning the promise of our human restoration. Because we all know that we've been created in the image of God, but we're fallen both by in, in, our, in our very core of our being. We know that what redemption looks like and feels like in our life to have our sins washed away by Jesus' work on the cross and the promise and his resurrection of restoration. We see all that even here. 
So we adore this one who would come to save us from our sins, and we look forward to the day when we are going to be made like him. I mean, he's the perfect example of the perfect human being. The image of God and man the way it was supposed to be. That's our future in Jesus Christ. And so we wonder and worship at the greatness of the incarnation and what it means for the whole world during this Advent season. You know, salvation and joy, they, they go together. We all know this. But you know, so many people lack true joy this time of year. They really do. There's a lot of people that hope they have it. There's a lot of people that do their best to pretend that they have it. And there's a lot of people out there that are just trying to figure out how to get it. And then many people realize that they don't really have it. And it tends to show itself in the coming months because we see people with new levels of depression in their lives. They don't have the joy of salvation. So tell them of the good news of the great joy that's for all the people. Their Savior has been born, and He's Christ the Lord Himself. So I hope you've wondered and worshipped this morning in a new way at the greatness of the historical event of all time, the Incarnation. And may you continue to have a joyful Christmas season as you adore our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us, and we'll finish our worship this morning. Lord Jesus, we adore you this morning. There's so much that we've pondered and thought about. And as we look to what we've learned this morning, we ask that you would just continue to fill us with adoration and joy. As we look to people around us in the world that lack it, that you would give us compassion and a desire to tell them the story that we know so well, the story that's true, the story that brings redemption and healing to our lives. And I pray for all of us in this church that you would continue to gain glory out of us as your people, that you would fill us with this joy that we would praise and glorify you all the days of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.